Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we have a special treat for you. As advisors, our listeners have real choices in the technology space to help them be better, faster, more accurate, and more efficient in delivering the services they offer clients. There's a ballooning number of tech options to choose from, including CRMs, investing and trading, account origination and tracking, secure portals and client communication, financial planning software, financial risk assessment, custodian platforms, HR and payroll, accounting, marketing, just to name a few. Our guest today is Bill Winterberg, widely known to many advisors as the fintech guru. We'll be discussing several topics with Bill, including how to use tech to buy the advantage of time and how to use that time and that tech as a differentiator in the marketplace. Bill Winterberg is founder and president of fppad.com. Bill is probably the only fintech blogger in the United States and is widely recognized as an independent authority on the subject of technology and financial services. Bill maintains a CFP certification and has past industry experience as a registered representative as a registered investment advisor. In 2014, Bill was recognized as a 40 under 40 honoree by Investment News and was also named the 2013 IA25 list of influential people in financial services profession by Investment Advisor Magazine. Bill is the host of FPPAD Bits and Bytes, a weekly video broadcast covering technology news and information for financial professionals. He's a sought-after keynote speaker who provides an objective and unbiased perspective of technology trends in the industry. Bill provides technology commentary for the Journal of Financial Planning and was the monthly technology columnist for Morningstar Advisor. Prior to entering the financial services industry, Bill was an embedded software engineer for Hewlett Packard Company and Leapfrog Toys. Bill, welcome to the program. We're honored to have you on the show today. Thank you, Dave. It is a pleasure to be with you. You have an interesting background, including two very different skill sets. One is an engineer and one is a financial advisor. It would seem you're uniquely suited for your current endeavors. How did you actually get to where you are now and what choices did you make to get there? Well, it's, it's good. It, it went through that laundry list of all the things. I turned 42 this month in February, and okay, yeah, I've, I've done quite a bit in the last 20 years. Hopefully, we'll have another exciting ride for the next 20. So you brought up, brought up an interesting uh, confluence of things that I've done, one with software engineering and the second in a consulting role, as well as a direct uh, planning role in financial services. So I was born in the Santa Clara Valley and Santa Clara County out in California, and my youth in the 80s and early 90s was when Silicon Valley boomed and when chip manufacturers like Intel and, and Apple were uh, booming out there. So I don't know, I just being fortunate enough to be in that area directed me into a pretty easy path to get into software engineering. And uh, this uh, woman, this girl at the time that I was dating, who now is my wife of nearly 20 years, uh, the gentleman that she babysat for ran a company called Leapfrog Toys, and he knew that I was going to school for software engineering as well as audio engineering. So again, just a lucky confluence of events to call me, hey, I've got this job. We're releasing this LeapPad learning system in the market. Do you want to work on it? And I left the job at HP that I had, which my grandparents said, you're an idiot to leave a Fortune 500 <laughs> company for a no-name a no startup called Leapfrog. But it Turned out to be a good move for me professionally, as well as, I guess, financially. LeapFrog went public about three or four years after I started working there. I was with them for seven years. And when I was reaching that six and seven year time point, my wife had since left biotech industry and became 
a medical student and was going to become a physician. So I looked at options to pursue engineering where she was going to school in Maryland and didn't find much. Uh, It's defense contracting, you need security clearance. So I did some soul searching and kind of found the fact that providing personal planning uh, insight, which is something that I did haphazardly at LeapFrog because people were asking me about like, hey, what should I do with options? What should I do with taxes? That was something I could roll into pursuing uh, a profession in financial services. So that's what I did in transition in 2005, 2006. I became a registered rep, figured out that's not really great for me. It's not a good fit. I discovered uh, an operations role for a fee-only firm in the Pacific Northwest, and I excelled in that role, applying my systematic thinking of engineering into the business of providing financial advice. Uh, really helped that office uh, weather the financial crisis of 2008-2009 by streamlining their technology. So I discovered when I moved to Dallas, Texas in 2009, I could apply that on a consulting basis. So I fired up fppad.com. I did independent consulting, and I've been doing that full-time for uh, 11 years now. So that's that's that story in a nutshell. So really a combination of, of serendipity and some very strong choices based on circumstance uh, sort of put it all together for you. That's, that's an amazing story. That's right. Let's not underestimate the value of luck. I was really lucky in a lot of those points and uh, am blessed to have made some good decisions and poor decisions along the way, but it's all worked out. <laughs> We're happy to have you. Let's talk about the industry in wide scope for a minute. How has the, the focus of fintech changed in the last 10 years? Used to be you could get by with Morningstar and maybe a CRM, maybe some custodian forms online, and that was it. How did this thicket of platforms and software start growing? I, I think I was fortunate to be getting into financial services in 2006, 2007, when just like you said, you had Morningstar out there for portfolio information. You had Redtail was the online CRM provider and uh, just a couple of other solutions, maybe two dozen. But what happened in the financial crisis of 08 and 09, coming out of that crisis, you had um, an, a pivot or a resurgence of, not a resurgence, but maybe a, a increase in interest in changing financial services and addressing these financial issues that, that uh, culminated in the financial crisis. And so you saw venture capital and private equity get interested into companies that we know and love today, like Betterment, Wealthfront, Personal Capital, LearnVest. So coming out of the financial crisis, these companies really flourished in the messaging, the marketing, if you will, of we're going to change financial services. Financial services was responsible in part or in whole for this crisis. So these new companies, these new upstarts are going to tackle some of the ills that were evident in the industry, and they were going to change things for the better. And I think we witnessed over eight years, nine years since then, huge amounts of money going into these direct-to-consumer platforms, but also increased interest overall in financial services. And that has increased money, that's increased M&A activity, that's increased the startups who provide services to advisors. So we've seen a huge explosion in companies that provide these B2B2C services or these services to advisors, which advisors in turn deploy to their end investors, to their clients, or it helps the advisor be efficient so the advisor can take on more clients or decrease cost or a combination thereof. It seems like a lot of the activities that most advisors undertake every day 
are are routine and and fairly repetitive. That sort of lends itself to to systematization and automation. Uh, you can you can make a tech version of some of this stuff, and it tends to make things more efficient. The other thing I would think that contributed to exactly what you just said is the growth and ubiquity of high-speed internet everywhere. Um, without that, some of these platforms would be incredibly difficult to work with. Um, but I think that grew along with at the same time when when some of these software platforms were coming on and anything was possible once you had that. So that kind of fueled some of the growth as well. Indeed. Um, clearly, there's a lot of choices out there for financial advisors to choose from when it comes to building a tech stack that works to help them run their practice. That number of choices keeps growing every day. But hardware and software are only one aspect of the tech picture. We'll get to those aspects in a minute, but let's start with the basics. What do you think is the biggest advantage a good functional tech stack brings to an advisor in his firm? Well, the, the advantage is the advisor is able to become a specialist in the services and I suppose products that the advisor or the advisory firm offers to a clearly defined segment of households. Uh, so it's really tough today, in my opinion, and you, you'll hear this, you've probably heard this earlier on your podcast, it is hard to be a generalist, and it is hard to provide financial planning to almost all the households in the United States. So the positive is, with this advent and increase in technology, is as an advisor, you can choose these unique solutions, bundle them into your firm, and create a unique package that aligns with the needs you've identified among your target audience of the households that you serve. But the flip side to that is there's a huge negative, and that huge negative is as an advisor or an advisory firm, you are now charged with the increased burden of understanding hundreds of solutions. How do you perform your due diligence? How do you monitor the activities of all these different unbundled or discrete solution providers, how do you evaluate them all and how do you figure out which one plugs in with your business? And when I say plug in, does it work well with the other solutions that you have out there or does it create some additional headaches? And we'll probably talk about some of those headaches a little bit later on. But that's the negative is when I started consulting in 2009, again, it was like two dozen solutions that you would search through and it still kept me engaged full-time, keeping up to date on those two dozen solutions. Now it is 124 solutions, or I was just at the TD Ameritrade Institutional National Link 2020 conference. They integrate in the Veo universe with over 175 unique providers. I'm doing the mind explosion, hands away from my forehead, GIF uh, meme for those who don't get the video podcast. That makes my mind hurt. And I do this full time. As an advisor, you're listening to this and it's like, man, how can I inside my firm juggle the daily responsibilities that I am obligated to provide to my clients? But oh, by the way, got to stay up to date on 175 different solutions. It's a big job. And we'll talk about how to break that down in, in just a minute because we'll talk about quantifying the value of your tech and, and some other things. But I want to get back to something simpler first. We've heard from advisors who are looking for advice on their tech choices, and it's clear that some feel that software is the answer to almost all their problems. And that, but it's not as easy as download and go, right? I mean, software is just one facet of, of the impact tech can have on your business. What are some of the other key impacts or choices if you're if you're going to start from the beginning? Well, the biggest advantage, in my opinion, is your firm, you can be 
organized. And it, you'll hear, I, I'm very pragmatic in my approach, and it applies kind of this engineering structure to it. But identify the things that the firm excels in doing, and then split that into two parts. What are the parts? So part one, what's the part that can be streamlined? What's the part that you can build some algorithms around or repeatable processes, right? This is a scalability component of your business, but that's not going to cover 100% of what you do in your business. The other segment are the things that are hard to replicate and hard to repeat. This is the real customized approach and the unique things and unique attributes that each household has. So find out what those two segments are. And with the things that are repetitive and potentially scalable, look for ways technology can give you that scalability. That should decrease your burden, your workload, your people hours spent in your business, and it should unlock those people hours. It should unlock that burden so the firm can better apply its resources, which we have limited time resources. That you have 24 hours, you can't, I guess, scale it because you can't get 26 hours in a day, but you can do more or be more intentional with what you do, what the firm does with the time that it has um, allocated each and every week. The choices keep burgeoning. And I know this is is something that advisors have trouble with is keeping track of that 175 firms you mentioned. Uh, we talked about differentiating and serving niches. We've been preaching and, and beating the niche drum here for 22 episodes or so. And uh, I think it's finally starting to sink in. But can a tech be a differentiator in the marketplace beyond the time it takes to sort of focus and concentrate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you you lobbed me a softball question here as this tech guy for the last 10 years in consulting. But a, a great analogy is a recent experience I had with my son going out and trying to find lunch one day. We drove up to a Chick-fil-A. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, so Chick-fil-A is uh, really uh, dominant around here. Anyway, we go up to Chick-fil-A. You know, the drive through line is around the block. So we park and we walk into this thing and the line inside is huge. Well, guess what? I remembered I can open up my app and I can do ordering through the app. And guess what? Every table in the restaurant has a number. So I can sit down at table 44, finish my app order. And I guess I'm not tweeting or anything. I'm, I'm, posting in the app, hey, I'm sitting at table 44. I pay because it's integrated with Apple Pay. And then we wait there. And like literally two minutes later, and I don't know how far the line has moved up front by the cash registers, but literally two minutes later, a tray comes out with my order. It's totally accurate. Hey, Bill, great to see you today. Thank you for coming to Chick-fil-A. That is magical. Okay. And that is powered by technology. It was magic. So if the firm, think about like, okay, we're a firm that provides financial advice. Great. You know, what can we do that makes it somewhat magical? Well, there's a lot of things that we might be able to get into, but things that aren't magical, let's start there. If you're generating paper statements, if you require clients to drive to your office to grab a pen and scribble on a piece of paper, aka wet signatures, if you're asking clients to uh, return a FedEx overnight envelope with documentation in it, if you're asking clients to write a check in order to fund an account, okay, these are things that are not magical, in my opinion. These are pieces of low-hanging fruit that any firm can identify and say, we need to create a more frictionless experience for our clients. That technology can differentiate because I got to admit, you got to think nationwide, but you also got to think in your metro area, how many other firms are still using these 
high friction activities in their business. So if you can apply technology, decrease friction, increase, uh, I, dare I say, customer delight or, or client delight, but if you can eliminate these challenges in the low-hanging fruit, your firm should become differentiated um, among your clients. And, and look, your clients are hanging out on sites like nextdoor.com. I mean, we all have to admit it. And every now and then somebody says, hey, I need a finance person or I need a CPA and somebody's going to volunteer that information. Hopefully it's your client. And it says, Hey, we work with this firm. They've got this great technology. I, we can do video chats. We don't ever have to sign stuff because it's all done electronically, safely, and securely. That's a pretty powerful recommendation um, on sites that are you know, social networks that you know your clients and their households are participating on and making those recommendations. So yes, technology can clearly be a differentiator. And not only a differentiator, we'll touch on this a little more. You can use technology to reshape the client experience. And we're going to talk about how to do that a little bit. Um, for right now, though, we're still back at the purchasing stage and keeping track of those 175 companies. What's the best way to quantify the value of a tech purchase? If you're looking at software subscription prices that range anywhere from you know $20 a month for something simple, all the way up to thousands of dollars for a seat license, how do you make the decision as to whether that's a good purchase for you? And, and is it based on productivity increases or time savings? How do you quantify that in terms of return? Well, how you quantify it is all of the above of what you had talked about. So some, some easy rules or some straightforward approaches that I would take is first and foremost, remember the client or the firm exists to serve the client household. So first and foremost for me, how does this technology alter client outcomes? How does it improve client outcomes? Because that's where the rubber meets the road for the financial services firm. Then the second level is how does this technology impact the firm? What type of internal firm benefits are there? Does it reduce cost? Does it increase efficiency? Is there increased scale with workflow? Uh, we talked about the, the Chick-fil-A app. Does it decrease friction for the client experience? Those are all valuable attributes but they're more applicable at the firm level where the firm can calculate, okay, it takes us two fewer days to generate these types of reports or provide this type of information across 900 client households that we serve. You can, you can work through those scenarios firm by firm to figure out what the impact is or the proposed impact is. I guess you never know until after you implement it but some of these assumptions early on. But also think about reductions in errors, um, trade errors that might be avoided or uh, trading mistakes that might manifest into capital gains you didn't intend to realize. Do you have some of these checks and balances in your trading software that can proactively identify those? So those are really dollars and cents savings again in the firm by not having to uh, reach into its trading fund to make clients whole and, and so on and so forth. But also there's intangibles on what an ROI is from technology. I talked about the the next door experience where clients are saying, hey, I need a new finance person or I need a new CPA. Some of the intangibles are referrals. Does your technology and does your experience, does it result in an increase in mentions or referrals uh, by your client households to others just because they like the experience? I mean, I got to tell you, I'm going to recommend busy people go to Chick-fil-A because, hey, the secret is order on the app and sit down. Don't even bother going through the drive through Don't even bother standing in line. That's a great experience. So I'm like 99% more likely to go there for food again than I am to visit other fast, casual restaurants. 
That's a great analogy. And you're right. You never know where that referral is coming from. And the use of tech broadening your footprint certainly can, can provide those intangibles. We're going to talk about how the, the customer experience can be shaped further and, and what that looks like. We're up on a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to look at advisors' biggest tech problems and get your best advice on how to get set up for success. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsourced options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201-919-4838. And we're back with Bill Winterberg talking about technology and the financial space. Bill, what's the number one problem you see with advisors are trying to solve with technology in your consulting practice? Are there good solutions for the problem or are we just flailing away at the same thing and not getting anywhere? Well, Dave, you're you're setting me up with this one. I'm always an optimistic kind of guy or frequently an optimistic kind of guy. Again, I'm hedging my bets. I try not to use uh, superlatives like always. So nevertheless, you're saying, what's the number one problem? Oh, uh, okay. Let's talk about problems. I think the problem I witness is many advisors do get caught up in the shiny object syndrome where you see something at a conference or you attend a webinar and this looks great and you get kind of hooked on the solution or how it looks or the potential client experience without first identifying the business need or the business opportunity or the client opportunity. So that's, that's I think, the number one problem in my opinion is the firm should be in a position to identify issues or problems or opportunities that is trying to capitalize on. What problem are you trying to solve? What opportunity are you trying to capitalize on? Start there first and then kind of reverse engineer or investigate the market on what your applications are. Because with over 175 solutions that we've been talking about today, there is a solution for something cool out there. No doubt about it. But is that cool solution going to meet the opportunities that lie in your firm? Does it really align with the increase in service experience or the increase in capability that really hits a home run for the service you provide to client households? If they're not aligned, you're just going to collect technology like their baseball cards. And this is not a baseball card collection. You don't want to amass all these different discrete solutions that just creates more complexity, creates really nuanced workflows that break down very quickly. It's just a, a really tough way to, to grow a business uh, given the pressures that the business climate is under today. So really you have to understand your business and its operations extremely well in order to pick things that are going to solve the problems you actually have and not just the ones they're presenting as problems in the sales literature. Exactly right. Exactly right. I think that's great advice for anybody in any business, but ours particularly, because you're right. Those That stack tends to get tall very quickly as you find new things. Oh, gee, we have that problem too. I guess we'll get this and subscribe and it's only $200. Well, by the time you've done that eight or nine times and realize not all of it works together and most of it is redundant in some form or fashion, you start to wonder why you've been through all this when it really hasn't solved the problem you started out to solve. Agreed. 
It's that's one of the things we've we've seen in other advisory firms and indeed elsewhere. Some of our listeners have likely seen that giant infographic that uh, Michael Kitsis presents that, that shows all the tech logos in the advisor space. And that illustration has grown nearly fourfold since its inception just a few years ago. Where do you see the tech universe going in the next five years, say? Because I know beyond that's pure guesswork. Is, is there industry consolidation in our future? Are there firms destined to grow through acquisition to capture big chunks of market share? Are we going to have like a Facebook for finance and that's going to take over everything? <laughs> okay. Well, a loaded question, but I'll summarize it with we we will see what I predict is you will see the rebundling of solutions primarily through mergers and acquisitions. So we have these discrete solutions. Many of them are startups uh, funded by venture capital or, or even bootstrapped to some extent. Uh, and congratulations to the bootstrap companies out there. It's uh, a lot of headwinds when there's uh, easy money or uh, fast-flowing venture capital tubes and pipes. So to reiterate, it's going to be bundling of these solutions back again. So 10, 15 years ago, I guess 15, 20 years ago, it was your core solutions like the Morningstar platform, like the Advent trading system and Redtail for CRM. Uh, and now you've seen these explosion into all these discrete solutions. Well, we had seen over the last eight years uh, with Morningstar acquiring a couple of firms, including aggregation like Vial Accounts, Investnet purchasing the Tamarack trading and rebalancing system, Fidelity acquiring eMoney financial planning, Plaid acquiring a Quovo in their aggregation, and then uh, most recently Orion Advisor Tech acquiring Advisor. And uh, oh, don't forget Investnet purchasing Money Guide. Okay, so I just rattle off a bunch of these consolidations and acquisitions, if you will, and I don't see that trend slowing down. I do seeing I do see it accelerating, and I also do think what we're seeing with uh, a platform provider like Salesforce. I think Salesforce works well in sales-oriented organizations, and the Salesforce App Exchange is a pretty powerful platform which is like WordPress was for web development, where anybody who could conform to the WordPress widget infrastructure could publish a, a widget, and that gives you some custom ability to do something special with websites. People and companies do similar things with Salesforce on the AppExchange platform. Uh, we'd seen that with some workflow providers uh, that used to be Orchestrate, uh, now part of Conga Systems. It was a great approach if you used Salesforce. I, I think over the next five years, we might see some platforms emerge. Uh, they might come from companies like Investnet and SSNC, Advent, Black Diamond, uh, Fidelity, and um, Orion Advisor Tech. You might see them emerge with some more of these platform approaches where anyone can adopt or write to these platforms. And again, it works like WordPress and WordPress widgets. Uh, these tech providers become widgets that uh, advisors can select from this and you know virtual app exchange and add to their business rather than trying to purchase them independent of a platform, uh, which is how things are really done today is you've got to go directly to the tech provider, buy it, and then ask, do you integrate with my trading system? Yes or no. And then navigate through all those channels. I, I think the platform will emerge in five years uh, to kind of... Um, react to the consolidation we will see through mergers and acquisitions. It seems like a very proven model. I mean, in other industries, there have been platform consolidations and everything from, from software to, to manufacturing to everything else. And it seems to make sense with that kind of sort of pick and swap capability that you can really build a stack on a platform 
and get the compatibility and, and the feasibility that you want out of it. That seems to be the way things are going in a lot of industries. And it certainly doesn't surprise me to hear you say that the finance is likely to follow that route. It seems to make perfect sense to me, um, which also helps our audience who are mostly smaller and solo advisors, because now they just pick a platform, pick the capabilities they want and, and make sure the one they have covers those capabilities in whatever they integrate with, which to me is much smarter than trying to learn all this and fix it, figure it out yourself and do the integration wholeheartedly with one or two people. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, that's right. It, I mean, it does come with risks, right? With platform risk or buy-in risk. Now, you know, in, in the Salesforce parlance, Salesforce is probably not going to get acquired by some other larger company because Salesforce is itself a huge company. Sure. But some of this platform lock-in with some of these middle market financial services providers, you know, the, the investment acquisition of Money Guide Pro Financial Planning for $500 million. I mean, it's a pretty big-ish acquisition in the RIA space, in the independent advisor space. And it gets uh, advisors thinking like, okay, how safe and what kind of future forecast and stability do I have with that type of acquisition? And uh, with this purchase specifically, there probably aren't that many concerns, but I don't think that's the case with some of the other acquisitions that we'll see in the future. There's always been a danger in consolidating areas that you back the wrong horse. I mean, ask anybody who bought a Betamax and they'll tell you that seemed to be the way to go at the time. And uh, yet it may not have been for the long term. And those things are decided outside your your ability to influence or control. But you, And nobody's crystal ball works perfectly. But your chances of getting a good bet are pretty good. For, for our, our uh, emerging advisors, Betamax might predate you. So let's I'll throw out the Windows phone analogy, man. <laughs> there are some adopters of Windows phone, which doesn't exist anymore. And that was just uh, like 10 or 12 years ago. So that's a little bit more recent analogy than Betamax. You, the MySpace you're, version. You're dating us. That's <laughs> the way it goes. Since most of our advisors are small, they're looking at a lot of software to increase efficiency. And we talked before about uh, reshaping the customer experience. Let's talk about how that can actually be done with, with tech that advisors can get off the shelf uh, at this point or, or through their, their developer or integrator and, and see how that might look. What, what would a, a small advisor do first if, if they wanted to sort of use tech to increase their, their client experience? Emerging advisors, what would I do? I'd either go through my own client experience, but you know what? I probably wouldn't go through my own client experience. I might engage a colleague advisor who's also an emerging firm and maybe do a swap. Hey, I'll go through your planning experience if you go through my planning experience. It makes me giggle a little bit, but seriously, go put yourself in the shoes of a client household. Go through the experience that another advisor offers and go through the discovery process. What's their onboarding like? Do you get a login to a client portal? I don't know if you want to aggregate assets, right? So maybe you can kind of mock up something or just aggregate one account, assuming that all the other accounts get aggregated, right? So you can do a little uh, modified version of going through the process, but come on. I mean, go soup to nuts through it and figure out, boy, this was a hassle. This was really good. Wow, I like the app. And I like the messaging that you have via the app. That's pretty cool. And I saw your video in the app. I thought that was cool. So you get exposed to, I guess, how that advisor does something. So you probably don't want to do it with somebody in your uh, local metro area. Maybe you want to reach across a couple of time zones to a colleague that you uh, have rapport with. Uh, but vice versa, right? You, you got to trade off and allow that colleague to go through your planning process and then get that feedback. I think that exposes you to just how things are done elsewhere. 
And then I think the two firms can go back and forth of, wow, you know, was really impressed with that experience. What do you use? What were some of the other solutions that you thought were similar that you performed some due diligence on? Did they integrate with your custodians or do you not have this custodian baggage? So on and so forth. I think that would be a worthwhile experience. And to, to a lesser extent, if you're not comfortable engaging in another uh, financial services colleague to do that, you might want to sign up for the direct-to-consumer services. Sign up for a Betterment account. Sign up for a Wealthfront account. Um, and kind of ignore the specific portfolio guidance and portfolio recommendations. But pay attention to the onboarding experience. Pay attention to the types of information that they ask. And pay attention to uh, whether or not there's any friction in that process. And, and then ask yourself, wow, what am I doing in my firm that puts up more barriers to the client experience and how can I eliminate them? I, I think that would be a, another approach that I would take. That's a fantastic idea. It's, it's the very best way to do first person customer research because now you're not only getting feedback from someone who has possibly similar issues and has been challenged by them, but also speaks your language well enough to communicate that feedback in a way you can use. It's a very effective way to do things. Uh, I, I'm thrilled that you brought that up because more folks should be sort of mystery shopping other advisors to to get feedback on and swapping to get feedback on themselves. It's a terrific idea. I mean, you put yourself in the client shoes and then you're like, hey, well, guess what? Uh, I'm I'm an advisor. I run a busy business and I don't have time to do this onboarding process. Well, guess what? Prospects are busy too. Nobody else does. They're going to have this, right? Nobody's got the time. Their prospects are busy. They're going to complain too. And it's like, oh, that should make the light bulb go off for you. That's why prospects bail. That's why you're not closing that business. And, you know, for one of many reasons, but if it's a pain and a hassle for you to kind of mystery shop, well, guess what? Why would prospects want to go through that process in your business? I think it's a very telling and very enlightening experience. Sure. I mean, visiting your financial advisor and setting up your accounts has been likened to a, a visit to the dentist and not in a, prof in a uh, preferred light either. Um, that to me should be sending a message across the industry that, hey, there's something wrong here. Customers expect more and we can do better. Indeed. Boy, dentists get such a bad reputation. They Boy. do. And it's not necessarily earned, but there's always a couple out there that scare people. Uh, talking about the industry in, at large, uh, we've got generational issues in terms of the transference of wealth, but we've also got generational issues in terms of finding new clients in that other generation. As an industry issue, what do you see as the future of them, things like robo-advisors? Will they increase in popularity when Gen Z and the millennials adopt the sort of at-will, hands-off process of a robo? Or will they become the dinosaurs and be surpassed by another species altogether? The automated investing, or the robo-advisor, which is my paradox that uh, I didn't invent, although I uh, used it prolifically and I, I use it, and I think it's a great paradox because um, anything by definition that's a robo cannot be advice, right? So it's a nice paradox that cannot be true. So these <laughs> emerge, right? It, it can't be advice if it's robotic and, yeah, vice versa. So um, automated investing, it's cool. What really happened and transpired here was the decrease in cost for automated investing. Um, I try to get my arms around is how different are these from mutual funds? How different are automated services from uh, packaged exchange traded funds that follow indices, right? There's certainly uh, purported benefits. That's a lot of marketing, which is, well, we can do tax loss harvesting. We can even do that daily, or we can do daily rebalancing in your uh, automated investing account. Well, I 
think like, what does a mutual fund do? Don't they try to balance their fund holdings kind of on a daily basis using cash flows in and out to do that? Uh, no, I don't get direct tax loss harvesting from a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund. But if I'm an av average household consumer, shouldn't I have uh, at least a majority of my money in a tax deferred or tax qualified account and less money in a after tax account, which is where you only benefit from tax loss harvesting? So I go through all those questions in my mind to answer your question, which is I just I don't see the automated services truly accelerating and just. Uh, becoming the de facto standard from any type of emerging investor. Uh, but that said, I think the competitive pressures and the pricing uh, transparency is what is going to become paramount among this generation of emerging investors. It's like, why should I pay a high fee on an annual basis when I can get at least the portfolio services and some of these other value adds at one quarter of the cost? And we've seen services like Betterment and Vanguard introduce or uh, debut with human advisors. And the marketplace is responding that these hybrid services, these automated plus human engagement services for low cost, uh, Vanguard's priced at 30 basis points, Betterment's uh, augmented services priced at 40 basis points. Those are pretty attractive uh, prices. And Schwab is out with the uh, intelligent advisory service that is a flat fee of 30 bucks a month after you pay the $360 uh, onboarding fee. That's going to start anchoring investors to these prices. So it's less about technology, right? And it's more about what the marketplace is responding with, with respect to fixed pricing. So I'm, I'm kind of a firm believer that fixed pricing will begin to be accelerating as the preferred engagement and the preferred fee structure by emerging investors. I'm biased because I've been paying a fixed fee. I've been paying an hourly fee basically for the last 10 years. And I have to admit, I've gone a couple of years in between advice engagements with my certified financial planner practitioner, just because my situation has been pretty stable, right? So being thinking about my accounts and if I'm paying on an asset-based fee uh, for things that I can get on automated services at a flat fee, it's really tough for me to say, oh, I'm going to increase the fees that I pay for. Am I really getting a lot of value here? I, I think more emerging investors are going to be like me and be very much more fee conscious and more aware of the solutions that are out there. So we won't see fee compression, if you will. There's going to be firms that aren't going to change their fees and never have to. But what I see is I think some of the legacy firms with legacy fee structures see fewer and fewer prospects convert to clients. That's, I think, the pressure that the industry will see in the next five to 10 years. I, I have to agree. We've seen similar outcomes uh, in other situations here in that, yes, it, the, the pendulum swings from all personal service and then the, the robos came in and everybody said, oh, this is terrific. We can all do it ourselves. Then they realized they were missing a good two thirds of what the value really was. And now are swinging back to sort of a middle ground where the, the hybrids are starting to come out. And, and you can see that happening in other industries as well, where people have learned to value that human interaction and that human objectivity and, and human insight, if you will, that computers will never be able to, to provide or replicate. And I think we're going to see people being very value conscious. And that always puts price pressure on those that are less valuable because now they can't charge as much. So advisors, I think, have to be a whole lot more conscious about what it is they're offering and how they're presenting their value. 
as opposed to which which model they're necessarily using. Bill, your insights have been fantastic today. I've really learned a lot in our conversation. And I'm sure our audience is just dying to get out there and start thinking about some of this stuff. If there was one piece of advice that you would give our audience of, of small solos and, and emerging advisors that they could put into practice in relatively simple fashion today, what would it be? That one piece of advice for me is to, again, think about the client characteristics and think about the similarities of the households that are served by the firm. How are they similar? And then how are they different? Uh, and with those differences, are they really, you know, how much are they deviating there? Uh, a great analogy here is, is your firm going to operate like In-N-Out Burger or is your firm going to operate like the Cheesecake Factory? Okay. People who want burgers, who, who are in Southern California or wherever, they're going to go to In-N-Out and they're going to get a great experience, great value. It, it's a home run. Uh, if you want a burger, you're probably not going to the Cheesecake Factory. You sit down and you get this Bible, uh, which is a menu. Cheesecake Factory serves everything for everyone. And, you know, they've got their own model, but uh, they're not known for like the thing other than cheesecake because it's in their name. But like, you know, if you want a burger and you want a satisfaction for a burger, you're going to go to In-N-Out because that's their specialty. That's what they do. And we've heard it in other podcasts before where it's select your niche. Identify the 80% of the activity that you perform on a routine basis. And that identifies, that describes the niche of households that you serve. Then figure out how to reverse engineer that so you can identify more households that align with the services that you provide. So try to avoid being the cheesecake factory, which is forcing your kitchen staff or your back office staff to cook everything for everybody and meet all tastes, right? It just creates a huge kitchen. It creates inefficiencies and, and nobody's happy uh, because everybody in the kitchen is just running into each other trying to serve all these varieties on the menu. I don't know how the Cheesecake Factory does it successfully, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. <laughs> but you go into the In-N-Out, you can see the service, and you've got the grill people, you've got the fry people, you've got the drive through people, you've got the cashier people. Boom. It's just so efficient and so streamlined. But, you know, they do customization too. You can go and ask for the peppers, you can ask for the sauce, or you can get the fries super cooked. And that's the 20%, which is your unique households and the things that they need. And the in and out model accommodates that. So that's, that's really put the characteristics in place. F figure out who you are, who you serve, and then figure out how technology aligns with the services that you provide. Rather than purchasing technology to stay up on things and to be really cool and be on the cutting edge of things, think about how does this serve the clients that I serve? How does this attract the prospects that are really good fits for our business? and buy the pieces of technology that overlap tremendously, like a Venn diagram with the households that you currently serve and the households that you want to bring on to your business. Fantastic and right on point. Bill, thank you so much. I think I'm going to go get a burger. I'm getting hungry. Sorry to have done that. <laughs> and make sure you chase it up with a slice of cheesecake. <laughs> I certainly will. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. We've been speaking with Bill Winterberg about how technology can help advisors create efficiencies, build a better client experience, and differentiate the level and playing field with larger firms. If you have questions about technology and how it affects your business or about anything you've heard on this program, drop us a line at fouradvisors at pinnacleadvisory.com and we'll get you an answer. You've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. 
This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such.